Wild Lives by Phonographic. Hey, I'm Rochelle and welcome to Wild Lives by Phonographic. Today we're speaking to the legendary shark expert Valerie Taylor, who, along with her late husband Ron, introduced the world to the beauty of sharks through their groundbreaking documentaries. Valerie's now in her early 80s and after spending a lifetime in the ocean, she is still diving today. She and Ron first met while they were spearfishing in Sydney in the late 1950s and the couple quickly bonded over their love of the sea. Soon they swapped their spears for camera gear and started filming the underwater world, then selling their footage to Movie Tone News. Their shark films were shown in cinemas all around the world and Valerie quickly became an icon with her stunning looks and glorious hair, but more importantly, her bravery. She became known as the world's most glamorous shark expert. By 1963, the Taylors had made their film Shark Hunter, which sold in both Australia and the US. And over the next decade, they produced films and TV series that gained international renown and awards. Their feature film from 1971 called Blue Water, White Death was a true game changer. This doco featured one of the most terrifying moments ever caught on film. Valerie leaves her underwater cage and she literally becomes surrounded by hundreds of sharks as they're feasting on a whale carcass. The film was a mega success and afterwards Val and Ron were approached by Spielberg to film the real-life shark footage for Jaws. In the following decades, the Taylors produced countless docos and filmed ocean sequences for all kinds of blockbusters, including The Blue Lagoon and The Island of Dr. Morrow and a stack of others. Over the years, Val's photos have appeared in plenty of books and articles for National Geographic and Time, and she's collected a cabinet of awards for her incredible marine conservation work, including the Order of Australia. She's also scored a few stitches here and there for shark bites. So Valerie, you grew up in New Zealand and then discovered your love of the ocean back here in Sydney, didn't you? I was born in Sydney. My parents went there when I was three. My father was a battery maker and he was making batteries for uh, aeroplanes and submarines and boats and tanks and things over there. And I went to school in New Zealand. We came back to live in Australia when I was 16. Is that when you discovered your love of the ocean? I always liked the ocean. I uh, really didn't start working in it until I was, oh, I I stopped spearfishing and became a conservationist when I saw what was happening to the ocean and how it was deteriorating at a rapid rate, not the water at that time, but the life in it, Mm -hmm. because I grew up in a world without plastic. I didn't realise what a terrible thing plastic was until the 60s. Do you remember the very first time you saw a shark? Oh yeah. I was with my brother. We were spearfishing at Bundina near the Royal National Park and we both got out of the water saying, aren't we lucky? We lived. It was actually a grey nurse. Looking back, I know it was a grey nurse. Over the years, you've had incredibly close encounters with all kinds of sharks. Is there one specific moment that stands out to you? Yeah, looking down and seeing my leg in a shark's mouth. That was good. (laughs) How do you stay safe, though, when you're surrounded by sharks? I read somewhere that you said you try to become part of the pack. Is that right? Well, uh, I've only ever had to do that once, and that was when there was a pack of incredibly dangerous sharks, the most dangerous in the world, feeding on a whale. And I had three other divers with me, and we watched them for a long, long time and realised that the oceanic white chip bumps before it bites. And uh, Peter Gimble, who was the director, said, 
if we bump them back harder than they bump us, they'll get respect. And I knew he was right. So we got out of the cages that were tied to the whale and there would have been over 100 sharks. And of course they came in and started bumping us. And it was in the old days when the camera was an Araflex and it was in a giant metal housing. And Pete just swung in circles bumping the sharks and I had a stick and I bashed them in the gills. I found out very quickly they hate being hit in the gills. And um, we made ourselves a place in the pack. They accepted us. Do you think, though, that sharks each have their own personalities? Every shark of every species has an individual personality. There's the, the cranky guy, the aggressive guy, the sulking guy, the guy that won't have anything to do with you. They're all different. And every now and then you meet one who seems to want to be with you. And that's very exciting. I like that. In Australia, the best place to find the Great White Shark is in the Great Southern Ocean, about 40 nautical miles off the mainland in an area called the Neptune Islands. According to the CSIRO, there are an estimated 1,460 adult Great Whites in this southwest population, which ranges from Midwest Western Australia to Western Victoria. The males can be found here all year round, while the females migrate to the area between April and August to feast on young seal pups as they enter the water for the first time. The great white shark is known for its impressive size, with females growing to over 6 metres long, or 20 feet, and weighing in at nearly 2 tonnes. They can swim at speeds of over 56 kilometres per hour, or 35 miles per hour, and they have no known natural predators other than, on very rare occasions, the killer whale. These sharks have serrated teeth that grow in rows, and when they lose a tooth, another replaces it. They are the perfect predator. But in the big scheme of things, shark attacks are quite rare. In fact, around Australia, great whites have been responsible for only 69 deaths since the 1800s. But although attacks aren't common, they can happen. And during her time working with sharks, particularly while diving with great whites, Valerie has learnt a bit about why. What's really going on when a shark attacks a person? A shark can't feel with its hands. Nearly all of them have a very strong curiosity. They feel with their teeth. Usually they will let go, but when a shark latches onto you, the average person pulls away and they pull their flesh over the razor shark, teeth of the shark. I stayed still and made the shark let go. Mm. Filming sharks played a big part in your career. Why did you guys decide to focus on them? I, we didn't dedicate our entire career. We did a lot of other films about um, other marine animals and beautiful things underwater, but sharks sell, and we had to make a living. And uh, also they're exciting and you feel a, get a feeling of great satisfaction after spending time with a group of sharks and getting to know them and having them actually get to know you because they're not stupid. They have a very small brain, but they use all of it. We have a giant brain and we only use a tiny bit of it. And you can teach a shark a simple food-related trick. Really? Have you done that? Oh, yes. How does that work? With food. You come into the camera left to right, I'll give you a fish. If you come in right to left, I'll bash you on the head. 
<laughs> simple, simple. You recently went to South Australia to dive with great white sharks for the very last time. It's the last time because the waters are getting a bit too cold for you. How did that go? Well, they hadn't had a shark for weeks when I went down there. And uh, we were filming on land and somebody got word, a radio message, to say there was a shark in the area. So we went back to the boat and they put down the cage. They didn't see any shark. And I thought, well, they're not doing anything to really attract the shark. Uh, they're not allowed to use baits anymore, such as, you know, big lumps of meat mm. or fish. And we went down, uh, anyhow, I went down in the cage with the scientist. Her name was Emma. Mm. And I rattled the bars and waved my arms around. I wore my bright pink wetsuit, made myself a curiosity. And the shark came in. And when it went away, I'd do the same thing again. I'd come back and have another look. <laughs> You've definitely worked out the best technique for it. Well, I've known that for a long time. Mm. They like colour, and especially white sharks. They're attracted to colour. They're attracted to noise. I yelled and shrieked. And uh, they, they're just curious. There was no food involved. You're still diving after 60 years. Do you still get a rush every time? No. I'm very pleased to slide under the surface of the water, but I don't get a rush. Mm. Maybe if I slid under the surface of the water and landed on top of a crocodile, I'd get a rush. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> How have the oceans changed, though, since you first started out? Dramatically. What was once a crystal clear, pristine environment for a fish has become, in most places that I go, dead, ugly, plastic hanging on dead coals, no fish, or very few, just small fish. I have been island hopping across the Pacific, uh, snorkeling mostly, but diving in the French Polynesian Islands, and it was sad. I was there 20 years ago, and it was brilliant. Mm. It was worse than sad. It was horrific. The corals, most of them were dead. Very few. If they saw a big fish, the guy diver would get all excited and run Pointing, I was swimming through schools of big fish. Mm. We didn't see any sharks really at all until we got to French Polynesia. And it was just sad. Um, going back to Indonesia, where there are marine national parks and the animals are protected and you can see large fish and manta rays and things like that. Has the area around Sydney changed much? Do you still go out? Oh, yes. I snorkel, mm. mostly. I've always been a reasonably good free diver. Uh, the only place worth diving to see the marine life around Sydney is off Shelley Beach, Manly, mm. Cabbage Tree Bay, because it's protected. But Sydney Harbour has a lot of unusual, very small marine life. It's very good for macro. What other sea creatures have caught your attention over the years? Well, I had a very friendly eel. I had three very friendly eels. They can become just like pet dogs um, if you get to know them and feed them and stroke them and scratch them. Uh, you could actually become friendly with any wild animal on land or underwater if you're gentle. You approach quietly and softly and you give them a present, which is always food. 
Now, I've done some reading and over the years, you've had some pretty incredible adventures unexpectedly. There was that time you got stuck in a whirlpool and also when you were left behind in the Banda Sea. Can you tell us about those? Yeah, that was, that was a bit awful. <laughs> the whirlpool was the worst because I was alone and helpless. And when your exhaust bubbles are going down as fast as you, this is air going down, you know you're in trouble. Mm. And being left behind and surfacing and seeing the mothership going over the horizon is, is a rather unpleasant feeling. But uh, I have a lot of experience in the water. I was on a reef. There was a lot of current. I could see an island in the distance. I was in an area called Lucipara in the Banda Sea. I had about 500 pounds of air. And uh, I could see an Indonesian fishing boat, so I swam towards it. But they wouldn't let me on. They would have nothing to do with me. Why not? I asked our cruise director afterwards, and he said they would have not known what you were. They would have been frightened of you. They would have thought you were a devil from the deep. You know, they were just simple fishermen. Mm. Great believers in spirits and devils. So then I built an island. There'd been a, at some stage a cyclone or very bad weather, and a lot there were on the top of the reef. The water was about uh, three metres deep. There were a lot of overturned plate corals. I used up the last of my air making an island that I could stand on with my head above water. Wow. And I took off my weight belt and I used to wear two hair ribbons and I tied my hair ribbons together, tied one end around the weight belt, one end about around my wrist and I could stand on the my island with my head above water. And there was a, I had to have an anchor because there was a strong current. I knew it was high tide. I figured the tide would go down. I should be able to walk across the reef in my, with some coral in my flippers or even swim and pull myself along hand over hand, get to the little channel that separated the my island from the reef, go up current, swim across, land on the island, and I'd be okay. I'd worked it all out. Mm. But the uh, some of the crew came out fishing, and I could see them in the distance, the crew of the mothership. And in Indonesia, you throw water in the air if you want to traction underwater you know they don't have uh, anything else so I threw water in the air one of them and screamed and yelled it was a very calm day one of them saw it came over and picked me up <laughs> I'd been there for a, quite a few hours my husband and my nephew had both had lunch and not noticed I wasn't there I bet they were in trouble after that no no what's the use <laughs> there was a big board with squares on it and it was about I suppose, 25 divers, mm. and every diver had a square. And when they went in the water, they went from one corner to the other with the chalk. And when they came out, they crossed us. So there was a big cross. Guess whose job it was to make sure everybody was back? Mine. There was one square not crossed off, and it was mine. And nobody else had checked. In a way, I guess it was lucky it was you, though, because you knew how to get out of it. I wasn't happy about it, but I knew that I could get out of it I don't know what I would have done on the island. There was nobody lived on it. Mm. I would have got jolly thirsty. But I, at the time, I thought, thank God, it's not one of the passengers. 
yeah, for somebody less experienced, it could have ended very differently. And what if it get off the reef, you're lost. Totally lost. Because you're in the open ocean. They won't know where to look for you. If you stay on the reef, they know eventually when they can't find you anywhere, that's where they last saw you. Mm. And they'd go back to it. I hope. I imagine. Yeah. That'd be the sensible thing to do. Yeah. Now, on a different note, you've always been a very talented artist, and way back before you started filming Sharks, you actually worked as an animator and an illustrator, and you recently released two new books. One of them's a colouring in book called The Undersea Artistry of Valerie Taylor, and there's also the children's book, which is called Melody the Mermaid, Adventures in the Kingdom of the Sea. Tell us about them. And the book is my story, my art. The story in Melody is a true story about the Coral Sea Current and all the land that the mermaid goes through actually exist underwater. And the real fish, the ones that are copied from my slides, are exact. Mm. But around them, it's all fantasy. But if the child reads the story, they will learn about the Coral Sea Current. In the Atlantic, they have the Humboldt, Coral Sea, we have the Coral Sea Current and right at the back they will learn about some of the marine creatures that I've painted. Hmm. Do you have any more adventures planned? Any more adventures planned? Yeah, are you going diving or anything in the... Well, I'm going diving, on, I leave here on the 13th. I'm going to Komodo Marine National Park wow. on a dive boat. Yeah. I think uh, the following month I'm going somewhere, I'm going back to uh, I'm going east of Flores on another dive trip on this on a beautiful dive vessel called the Seven Seas. It's the best run dive vessel I've ever been on, and I find it very easy to, even at my age, dive from it, work from it. We'll have amazing adventures, and we look forward to staying in touch and, and watching them unfold. And thank you so much for your time today. Okay, well, it was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Now, if you'd like to check out Valerie's two awesome new illustrated books, you can buy them on Amazon, Angus and Robertson, Booktopia, Book Depository, and a stack of other retailers. But I will put up some direct links for you on Fornographic.com. Catch you next time. Wild Lives by Fornographic. Follow us on Omni.fm or search for Wild Lives by Fornographic on iTunes. Subscribe today and you'll never miss an episode.